Um, we've been going through Acts uh, last several weeks. I wasn't with you last week. Um, I was at Young Life Camp, and Travis was here with you. Um, and, uh, and what we've seen is uh, Jesus has ascended into heaven. Uh, Jesus, before he ascended, gave uh, his disciples a task. He said, uh, you're going to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Um, and they were kind of stuck wondering, like, wow, how's this going to work? Uh, we're a bunch of idiots running around here, and we don't have what it's going to take. And Jesus says, it's okay. I'm sending my Holy Spirit to you. And when Jesus does that, he begins to empower them from the earliest days to do things that, that were totally unlike who they were up to that point. Uh, as they witnessed, as they witnessed there in Jerusalem. And uh, we see all these snapshots of what was happening. And then uh, in our text today, we see a summary, a bit of an ideal summary of um, what the early church was like in those days. Uh, So let's read our passage. And they devoted themselves uh, to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Uh, the word of the Lord. Uh, a few years ago, there was a book that came out called Radical. Anybody heard of it? Radical. Uh, it's a Christian book, and um, it was put out, and it really uh, is a good book, and it makes uh, a pretty uh, incisive dig uh, at the domesticated gospel that we see in, the, in America. What the book really does try to do is it tries to separate the American dream from the actual gospel. It's trying to say that Christians in America can easily continue to live lives of uh, luxury, of convenience, of family, comfort, and money, and forget that Jesus says, in order to follow me, you have to pick up your cross and follow me. So the title of the book is pretty appropriate, Radical, because denying yourself in our pretty consumeristic culture is radical. Well, if... uh, Many people finish reading the book and they say, oh man, I'm under huge conviction here. I mean, it comes at your heart. You begin to feel like, man, I'm a class C Christian running around here. My life really doesn't matter. I get up, I drink a cup of coffee, uh, I have a donut, uh, I go to work, uh, I come home, I pay a student loan bill, and um, then I watch Netflix. And then I wake up and I do it all over again. I would much rather be a class A Christian, even a class B Christian, than a class C Christian. So if you want to be a class B Christian, you think, oh, all right, I'll, do, I'll go into ministry. I'll go to ministry stateside. I mean, that's not as extreme as it could be, but that's better than this just humdrum normal life that I get to live now. Oh, but there's the A, you know, the A people. You know who the A people are, don't you? They're the missionaries. There are people who say, oh, yeah, I'll go across the world to people who don't know about Jesus. So we want to be radical. We want to do something that matters. But the question I want to ask today is, what if being radical is doing ordinary things over a long period of time? It's true in sports. Uh, Good teams are the ones, uh, especially football, that's where we're at at these days, right? Uh, They block well and tackle well. You can be super fast. 
uh, you can have a lot of skill, but if you can't block and tackle, you're not going to win any football games. It's true in parenting. It's easy in parenting to think, oh man, if I just blow it out at the birthday party, I can atone for the sins of the last six months as a parent. <laughs> if I can go on a killer vacation, I've got 11 months of screwing up that I can work with and do it again next summer. But it's a lot harder as a parent. Um, you don't block and tackle as a parent, at least I hope you don't. Um, what you do as a parent, the normal things, you read books to them before they go to bed. You share meals with them day after day after day. In a lot of ways, that's a lot harder than going on a vacation or throwing a killer birthday party. Then there's business. Maybe you're in business, and you know if you're in business that uh, making every process important, making every customer feel important, that's what success really is all about. What success isn't about is the next big sale. If the big sale comes, it's only because you made the processes and the customers important before that. But the fact is, all of us, we're going to spend the bulk of our lives doing ordinary things. Things like changing light bulbs. Things like filling your car up with gas. Things like setting an alarm and hitting snooze. Like trying to work out regularly. Or just occasionally. Things like going to work. Things about parenting children. These kind of normal things. That's what our life really is made up of. But because we live in a culture that's constantly feeding an obsession with excitement, we look at these seemingly mundane areas as things in our lives that need to be escaped from. We begin to think that spiritual maturity is about making these big decisions, when really spiritual maturity is about making small decisions over the long haul. Things like, will I be patient with my child? Will I give of my time and my money? Will I listen before I speak? Will I choose to receive rather than be critical? See, these are often, these are the unseen, unheralded choices that are always made in quiet repetition. So if being radical as a disciple is about these small, these mundane, these unseen choices, then being radical as a group of disciples is about doing basic things over and over again too. But what are these basic practices? What are the marks of a healthy church? If you were to take the vital signs of a church and find out how healthy it is, what should you be looking for? Well, that's what we saw in our passage just a few moments ago in Acts 2. This paragraph, like I said earlier, it's really different than what we've seen up to this point. Uh, it's, it's kind of a bird's eye view. It kind of zooms out. It's been zooming in on these occasions of Jesus' conversation with the apostles. It's been zooming in on the replacement of Judas as an apostle. It's been zooming in on uh, the, the apostles and the rest of the 120 speaking a language that they didn't know. And the response that happened to that. And now we get this zoom out view, this bird's eye view, this summary and it's of an ideal community. You begin to see, okay, last week they received the Holy Spirit and the forgiveness of sins. Now what does that look like? Well, we see it right here in this community. In this community, it's reached uh, the, the highest aspirations of the human heart, of our longings. You see unity here. You see peace here. You see joy here. And we're made to be hungry for these kind of communities. I remember, I know I talked about this a long time ago, but I remember, I'm never going to forget it. I remember watching Wild Wild Country. Anybody else get on board with Wild Wild Country after I talked about it last time? Don't do it. You'll just be depressed. Um, 
But if you watch it, you'll, it's, it's, a, it's a documentary, it's about a cult. And uh, it's a documentary about the Rajneesh movement that happened in the 80s. Thousands of people followed this teacher from India uh, to the middle of nowhere in Oregon where they set up shop. And crazy things happened up there. But now they're interviewing people in this documentary who were part of it in the 80s. And the thing that came up over and over and over again was the thing that they missed. And what they missed was the community. Think about when you hear from retired coaches or people who played sports. What is it that they love so much about it? It was the camaraderie that you had with the team. Now, these are small things. These are echoes that we're meant to hear, that, are, that we're meant to see that they're pointing to something more permanent, a community that's more complete than what you see in sports or what you see in this cult. What you're meant to see is the church's inner life right here. This is really what you want to be a part of. And these pictures here, this picture in Acts 2, it's a picture of the daily practices they had, their habits. And what we see here are four things. Here are my four points if you're a note taker. The four marks of a healthy church are a learning church, a sharing church, a worshiping church, and fourthly, an outwardly faced church. Learning, sharing, worshiping, and outwardly faced. So look, look, look at the learning part right there, the first phrase in verse 42. You see what they devoted themselves to first. It was the apostles' teaching. Who are the apostles? Uh, well, they're the, uh, they're the disciples, the 11 of Jesus' disciples minus Judas, but then they added Matthias, and you add Paul later on. These are the apostles' teaching. This is what they're committed to. And this is the group of people who wrote the New Testament. In fact, one of the criteria to judge what made it into the New Testament was whether or not the author was an apostle. And so, yeah, these apostles, they were the leaders. They were the ones who made decisions on behalf of the believing community. But they were also the ones who were the teachers of the believing community. In fact, it was this teaching that became one of the practices that was central to who they were, which makes sense if you think about it. Think about the life of Jesus. Jesus didn't spend his whole life with his mouth open, talking to people, but a lot, there are a lot of red letters throughout the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, aren't there? Because that's a big part of his ministry was teaching. And if you look at the sermons given throughout the book of Acts, I think what you'll find are, there's lots of commonalities, but the two that I think will stick out to you are the sense of authority that they thought they had and how the content of their sermons are just oozing, dripping with Jesus. The sense of authority. If you look back in the first sermon, the first sermon you remember was right before this in Acts chapter 2. And in verse 22, uh, he turns the corner after kind of describing, okay, here's what those people who spoke in languages they didn't know so that you could understand. Uh, that's the fulfillment of Joel 2. I've got to get past this thing about Joel 2, and I've got to now talk to you about Jesus. And he does so starting in verse 22. And in verse 22, here's what he says. He says, people of Israel, hear these words. People of Israel, he's addressing Jews here. Hear these words. Now, hear these words. This isn't a suggestion. Uh, this, is in, this is in the imperative. Uh, you, you could translate this, listen, with a bunch of exclamation points afterwards. So he had a sense of his authority, Peter did. And when you hear something like that, it kind of makes you wiggle, doesn't it, as Westerners? Even more so as a millennial. Because you say, I don't like people telling me what to do. And it makes sense. A lot of us, we've seen leader after leader abuse their authority. 
But Peter was in this place of authority. He didn't pine for this position. He didn't hold out for it and just climb the corporate ranks of the early Christian church. No, no, that's not, exact, that's not at all what happened. He was appointed. He was called by God to be his witness. He had this sense of authority. The other thing that we see is the first things after that. He says, uh, um, hear, or people of Israel, hear these words. Very the next thing out of his mouth. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. And for about the next 20 verses. He's just talking and glowing about this person of Jesus. You start looking at the other sermons, that's all they talked about was Jesus. Not what you could do for Jesus. Not these secondary doctrines. Not these tertiary doctrines. They stayed centered on the person of Jesus Christ. You pinch any of those sermons, Jesus comes out. So they were committed to the apostles' teaching. One of, the, one of my clearest memories of seminary, seminary is where you go if you want to be a pastor. I went to a place in Birmingham, and uh, first day of class, my professor, he put in a tape. And his old, he was old, and tapes were kind of old even when I was in seminary. Put in a tape and, a, and, and this cassette player, pressed play, and there were 12 people in my class. We kind of gathered around because it was real small. You could barely hear it. And we got around, and the guy preached for 20 to 30 minutes. And uh, before he, the, the, my professor in this preaching class says, uh, hey, I just, we're going to listen to this tape, and I want, I want you to listen and try to make a suggestion uh, for where this sermon was preached in town. It was preached here in town. It was he, preached here in Birmingham. I want you to tell me what church it was, what denomination it was. I'm not going to tell you on the front end. So he, we listened to this for 20 to 30 minutes. And man, the thing was full of Scripture. Scripture reference after Scripture reference after Scripture reference. Old Testament, New Testament. The guy was a wonderful communicator. I was ready to do whatever he told me to do. We get done. He presses stop. And he says, what church was that? We all had our guests. I mean, we were all over the map on denomina- what denomination or what church it was. And after a little while, he says, you're all wrong. This was preached at the Church of Latter-day Saints. That's the Mormon church. And you know what he didn't mention one time? Jesus. Whole sermon. Lots of scripture. Moved to do something because I wanted to honor God. But no Jesus. Well, that would never have happened with the apostles' teaching. Ever. That's what they heard over and over and over again. And that's what we should be listening for, too. As your pastor, I hope that that's one thing I can't fail on. That same class I told you about, uh, I mean, we heard this tape together a few weeks later. We're, we're practicing our preaching. Uh, one of my classmates stands up. He gets almost to the end of his sermon. And uh, my professor in the back, who was tremendously encouraging, he'd give you 10 compliments for every uh, one critique he'd give you. And he said, uh, I think his name was Jim, maybe. But he said, Jim, you need to have a seat. We don't have time to listen to sermons that aren't about Jesus. And I remember thinking, oh, gosh. (laughs) (laughs) And so I made sure. I mean, I'm talking about Jesus in this class. (laughs) So if you're in a community, if you're just checking this church out, I mean, we're going to be a mess. But I really hope you can't accuse us of not talking about Jesus. The apostles' teaching. The other thing that they were committed to is being a sharing church. Look at verse 42 again. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. See that next word? And to fellowship. 
I'll skip down to verse 44. You see some more of the sharing life of the church when it says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So you see, yeah, they're committed to teaching, but they're just not going to sit around and listen to the apostles wax and wane about Jesus so they can feel good about themselves. No, they had a shared life. They had a common life. That's what fellowship in verse 42 means. And this sharing, it all starts as something spiritual. What they were sharing together was the Holy Spirit. That's what they had in common. It wasn't their gender first. wasn't their race first. wasn't their nationality first. wasn't their ethnicity first. wasn't their education level first. wasn't their social status. wasn't their financial status. Nope. It was their spiritual life that they had in common. That's what grounded them together. And that spiritual reality became a practical expression when they shared their material possessions and they shared meals together. So sure, preaching has fallen on hard times. You find more salesmen in the pulpit than you do proclaimers of Jesus. But so has shared life. Shared life is really tough in our context. See, the majority of us, we've grown up in broken homes. And the family unit is supposed to be the school in which you learn and I learn how to do relationships. But for most of us, we experienced an environment that was far from safe and where few positive lessons were learned about relationships. So we had that going against us. We also have mobility going against us. We can move almost anywhere we want without any problem. But the downside of moving is that we have to start from zero with relationships. Then there's technology. And technology tries to tell you that you've got relationships. That's what social media does. But it's easy to mistake virtual relationships with actual ones. So sure, there's this broken family, there's mobility, there's technology. But the biggest threat to a shared life is found in your heart. Because many of us, we prefer isolation over relationship. Now, if I just run these through my life, um, I grew up uh, with a lot of brokenness in my family of origin. I lived in four place, four cities: Northern Kentucky, Lexington, Birmingham, and Boston, all in my twenties. In nine years, I lived in four places. I have a really hard time putting my phone down when I come in the house. I'd rather engage in relationships through my phone than with the people I live with, my family. And then there's the sense in my own heart. I, I, I would prefer to keep my sin to myself. In my shame, I'd rather hide and go underground. But a community that's grounded in the gospel forces us out of isolation into a shared life around a table. It forces us to share our money and share our possessions with those who need them. See, this was the shape of the early church. And all of us, we've got to swim upstream to make this a reality in our church too. So we have a learning community, we have a sharing community, and then we see a worshiping community. All right, so you see, and they devoted themselves. You see the word, there was apostles teaching. Uh, then it was to fellowship. And let's see the third thing, third and fourth things. Uh, they broke bread and the prayers. And then keep going to verse 43. And all come up, came upon every soul. All right? 
There's some worship going on there. Verse 46 and 47. We'll read those. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. See, when it says there in verse 42, the breaking of bread and prayers, what that's talking about is worship. See, the breaking of bread uh, most likely is referring to this meal right here. This meal that Jesus instituted in the upper room is something that they practiced immediately after Jesus' ascension. The breaking of bread. They had to do that in the prayers. And then in verses 46 and 47, we see, okay, if it's about, if that's what worship is about, it's about coming around the apostles' teaching, it's about having the shared life together, it's about breaking bread, it's about prayers. Okay, what, what, what does that mean? All right, 46 and 47 help us out a lot. 46 and 47 show us that, um, that their worship was formal and informal by looking at where it took place. You see where it took place? Look at it. Verse 46, and day by day attending the temple. All right. And then right after that, together and breaking bread in their homes. Temple, homes. Temple, formal. Homes, informal. See, if church is for you, it's only about Sundays, then maybe it's only formal for you. But maybe for others of us, uh, if it's not about Sundays at all, it's just about doing life together in homes, then you're all about the informal. But the early church, they didn't make this distinction. They did both. And if you come from a parachurch background, if that's what got you here, or if you're new to the church, this whole institutional thing, this Sunday corporate worship thing is probably something that you'd rather opt out of and skip straight to the informal thing. It just feels a little stifling. Be here on Sundays. Same place. Same thing. Every Sunday. You'd rather just be in each other's homes and hang out and talk about life. You like it real organic. You're kind of a hippie. That's being all informal. Others of us, we grew up in the church. Everything that ever happened in the life of the church happened in a building like this. If people started doing things in their homes, it would feel awkward. But the early church, they were comfortable being with Jesus both in the temple and being in each other's homes. So formal and informal. Then we see that it's reverent and lively. Look at verse 43, that first, that first phrase, all came upon every soul. And you know what all is? All is what happens when you encounter a moment that you can't put words to. All is what forces you to be silent. And this is what should happen in our worship as we encounter the living God. Moments of awe. Our worship should be lively, too. See what it says? Praising God. They were hooping and hollering. That's what that means. And what happened is that churches usually choose one or the other. They, when they choose to be all reverent with no liveliness, it's more like a crematorium. But sometimes it's more lively with no reverence, and then you have church as a carnival. But we want our church to be both. We want it to be lively, where this place is booming with human activity. But we want it to be reverent, where you can pause and be silent before God. So they were a worshiping church. 
The fourth thing we see about a healthy church is that it's outwardly faced. You know, those first things, learning, sharing, and worshiping, it's all about the relationships that they had with one another. But they know, we know from this passage that they weren't so preoccupied with these activities, things that nurtured their relationships with God and with each other as a church, that it preoccupied them to the point that they couldn't have any relationships out there. That's why verse 47 says, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So they were an outwardly faced church. It fits right in with Acts, doesn't it? As you begin to look through Acts, we're going to, be, we're going to see that the one dominant, the one overriding, the one all-controlling motif is the expansion of the church. The Spirit continually drives the church out into witness. The church is a missionary church in the book of Acts. It should be in our church too. We pick up a few things what we learn about being outwardly faced. Uh, the first thing we see, we see is that the Lord is the one who added to their number. Wasn't Peter's preaching? Wasn't the authenticity of their shared life? It wasn't how good their worship was? It was Jesus. Now, did Jesus use those things? Sure. But even a church that's enjoying this idyllic state like they were in Acts 2, it still lacked the power to convert the souls of men and women, because Jesus alone can do that. So Jesus is the one who added to their number. Added to their number. I think that's instructive for you and for me today. The added to their number piece is about their church growing in membership. See, people were being saved and being added to the church. People weren't added to the church without being saved. People weren't saved without being added to the church. So in other words, uh, being saved and church membership, salvation and joining the church, they went together and they still do. There's simply no room for being a disciple of Jesus Christ without being a member of a local church. There's also no room to be a disciple of Jesus simply by being a part of a church. Something on the inside has to happen. Added to their number. This last piece, day by day. Day by day. The manner in which the church grew, it wasn't sporadic, it wasn't occasional. Sure, into verse 41, uh, we see 3,000 people are added to their number. It's kind of like a revival. But after that, their growth going forward was steady. And it was gradual. See, if a church just grows with this big surge, if that's what they're really hoping for again and again and again, you just add programs, you just add the hype. And when that, really, when that happens, usually in our context, you've got people moving from one cool, the old cool church to the new cool church. I think you add these things together. I think if you have a, a church that's worshiping, you have a church that's sharing life, you have a church that's teaching with authority about the personal work of Jesus Christ, I think people will be added Then you add these things up. All four of these things. You see, they all involve relationships. Think about the apostles' teachings. The way that the early church was related to the apostles was through submission. Think about shared life. The way that they related to one another was love. Think about worship. The way that they related to God was through their worship. And now you've got this being outwardly faced. Day by day, the Lord added to their number. This is the way in which they're outed. They're related to the world. 
through outreach. This begs the question for me and you today. How are you doing as an individual in these areas? Take the first one. Do you struggle with submission? Do you struggle to get out of the deeply ingrained patterns of individualism so that you might have a shared life within the community? Do you struggle with wanting the church to be only lively or only reverent? Do you struggle with only wanting the church to be formal and not informal or informal and not formal? How's your outreach? Who are you building relationships with? Who are you praying for? Who are you having into your home? Who are you introducing to the rest of your Christian friends? How's your outreach? How about our church? How are we doing? Well, I think we've got room uh, to grow in all three or all four areas. But if I were to zone in on one, I would zoom in on this last one, an outward face, for a lot of reasons. I think there's a lot of reasons why the first three, based on our context, based on our theological heritage, based on our leadership, that we're doing at least moderately okay. But this last one, this is the one that I long for. I really believe that Jesus wants to show forth his manifold grace to our neighborhood through our church. What I really long for is for this room to represent our neighborhood. What I really long for is baptizing adults and children every Sunday. I long for people to come to this church, not from other churches, but people who were totally disinterested in the church and the gospel. But Jesus added to our number. But how's that going to happen? Well, remember, to get to verse 42, you've got to back way up. <laughs> remember? You've got to back up really to verse 22 that I mentioned earlier. Listen, Jesus. Hear, Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. So Peter preached about Jesus. Verse 37, they were cut to the heart. They repented and were baptized. They received the forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit. And then they started practicing these marks of a healthy church. Where are you in this process? See, Jesus is the one who did all these perfectly. He, he was in perfect submission to his Father. He did this sharing life thing perfectly because he didn't just share his gifts or his time or his money, but he shared his life. He gave it all. And worshiping, he had the formal thing down. His brother was always in the temple. He was in the temple when he was a little kid. All the way through the rest of his days, he was in the temple. He stood up in the temple and read Isaiah 61. and says, this passage has been fulfilled in your hearing. He loved being in the temple. He also loved being in people's homes. Jesus was the perfect demonstration of being reverent and lively. And then you see his relationship with the lost world. He spent his whole life with the lost world. But Jesus didn't just do this to model for us. He did this so that you and I might be empowered to live this kind of life. See, when he rose again from the grave, it just didn't bust out for us uh, to say, oh, Jesus must be God. He rose from the grave. No, 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 no. He rose from the grave, and now he's giving you power to bust out of these things so that you might not be deeply skeptical of leadership anymore. He did this so that you might not live an isolated life. He did this 
so that you wouldn't be all about self-worship, and now you're about Jesus' worship. He did this so that you might not be inwardly focused any longer, but so you might be outwardly focused. See, Jesus did this to infuse your life with power. And friends, this is available to you even now. Let's pray. Father, please make us this kind of church. No amount of vision or uh, programs uh, can do this. We might make, might make it look like it's happening. But Lord, in the end, we need you to infuse our body, these people, with your power. Lord, we long to be this outwardly faced church. Uh, Lord, we long to be uh, people where you're adding to our number day by day. Not so we have a big church and brag about it, but so that we might celebrate that you use little bitty meager people like us in your world. Oh, Lord, may we be astounded by the kind of power that we have only because you gave it to us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.